on this wonderful July 4th. I am so excited to be an American. I, I, um, I sometimes, uh, Toby is our graphic artist guy. And if you don't know Toby, you got to meet Toby. He's a great graphic artist, guy does stuff. But then there are some times, because the way that my brain works, I wait till the last moment to ask for a certain graphic. And one of the graphics that, in this particular case, was this graphic. And this was really, really, whenever I do graphics, it, it gets into this, like, existential thing, you know what I mean? I want the graphic to say exactly what the graphic is supposed to say, but there's only so much a graphic can say. And so I was beginning to put it together, and I saw July, I put July 4th there, and, uh, and then I was like, what am I going to put underneath it? And I thought about it a lot, and just stared at it a lot, and, and I, I, I put the start of independence. Because in 1776, a great thing was started here in the United States. Independence was started in the context that it happened for those first uh, individuals who made an incredible sacrifice, it was the, the, the context of a, a people within a people group that were fighting for freedom and representation and taxation and the oppression that was going on within that particular group. But initially, that independence did not get put and applied in all contexts. But as a nation, we are continuing to grow, to extend independence into all contexts of life. In 1964, in the Civil Rights Movement, once again, independence beginning to move into all these other categories. We are a great nation. If we continue in bringing what was started on July 4th, 1776, and continue to bring it first to all Americans, then bring it to all nations. That nation will never depart the surface of the earth as long as it continues to put the independence of all first and foremost. And I believe in this country that we get it right. It may end up taking us a little bit of time, but we get it right. So don't be ashamed and don't be pressured into not celebrating this great and awesome country. I hear there's a narrative right now where some people would say that we should just burn it down and start again. Uh, let me just say this, that if you attempt to burn down the United States, uh, I would like to boast you could never burn her down, but if you burn down the United States, you will not achieve the ability to now speak white or black or trans or male or female. All of us will have to learn Mandarin because the second largest property owners in the United States is the Chinese government, and they will not let you burn it down. So I say, instead of getting into all that mess, why don't we start looking, when we're in our cookouts today, and we're enjoying our beanbag tosses, and probably think, drinking a little bit too much Miller Lite, maybe we could remember that each of us have been endowed by God to extend freedom to all people. Let's look around our houses, let's look around our neighborhoods, let's look around this great city and this great nation and see where independence hasn't reached all people. And then let's take that flag and take it to all the countries of the world. I will not give up on the idea that was a great idea, but greater than what was in the mind of our forefathers. It was good in their moment. It can be great in our moment as well. So God bless America. All right. So, all right. 
So that's why I got my Navy shirt on, my little American flag. So I'm ready to rumble. Anybody, you know, so, and please, and also I need to say, I don't want to villainize the Chinese all the time. Uh, I'm sure the Chinese people are wonderful people. I'm just not a, a big fan of communism. So when I say Chinese, I, there are a great many wonderful Chinese people. So I, I'm, I'm, you know, just wanted to let you know. Okay, great. All right. Don't want to get caught up in that. Like the plot line about God. We kind of get caught up in the plot line and mess up the plot line a little bit. And I think we've, we've lost some of the plot line. So today we're going to be looking at another concept that you, we all think we're familiar with, we all talk about all the time. It was really fun because somebody asked me this week, hey, Pastor, what, what, what are you going to be talking about this Sunday? And I said, God. And they're like, oh, you're such a smart blank. And I'm like, no, no, I'm serious. I, we really are going to talk about God. I mean, the being God, God, you know? And, and there's a lot of um, figuring out about God. It's, it's kind of tough. Uh, and then figuring out Jesus is God, that's even tougher. So you're about to see a, an illustrative representation or teaching about the concept of God. Let me say before you watch it, because the last group was kind of nervous about it or afterwards, at least I could sense that, is that everything that you're going to see is Orthodox Christianity. That means all the Catholics in the world or the Catholic theologians and all the Protestant theologians in the world agree on this. Okay, so this is fundamental Bible, Christian philosophy about God and who he is and trying to understand him. So don't, um, we're not offering you some new look or some, or some new concept. This is good old God. Let's watch together. So I've got a question that's always bothered me. The Bible says there's one God, but in other parts of the Bible, God is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. How can it be both? Yeah, this is a question that has mystified people for thousands of years. And while we can't fully explain it, I think we can better understand what it is that we can't fully understand. (laughs) What do you mean? Well, think of it this way. Here's a two-dimensional plane. And then here's an object with three dimensions that's going to pass through the 2D plane. Okay, right. From this perspective, the 3D objects above and below the plane. So now it makes sense. But imagine you were a 2D person stuck on the 2D plane. What would you see? I don't know. What would I see? Well, it would look like this. Oh, yeah, okay. From this perspective, it looks impossible. It's one object, and then two objects, and then three. But in reality, they're all one, just not in a way you're capable of understanding. Now, let's take this whole thing as a visual analogy for how we experience God. The claim in the Bible is that God is transcendent, a divine being through whom we live and move and have our being. Or, as God says, I am. Okay, but I live here in this universe, so when God appears, it will make sense in some ways, but in other ways, it will break my categories. Exactly. This happens all the time when people encounter the God of the Bible. So let's look first at how this happens in the Hebrew Scriptures. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, God appears in complicated ways that don't quite fit our categories. One common way this happens is with God's attributes. So an attribute is a way to describe what something is like. For example, a soccer ball is round. Right. Or God is wise. Yeah, great, let's take God's wisdom. So the book of Proverbs says that God created the world by his wisdom. 
But then there are also poems in the book of Proverbs that describe God's wisdom as a person, a co-worker through whom God architected the universe. So God's attribute becomes a separate character? Yeah. This also happens with God's glory, which sometimes appears as a human figure on a throne that's engulfed in fire. Or take God's word, which he can speak to people, but sometimes his word appears like a person. Wait, so God's attributes have become new little gods? No, no. The biblical authors believe there's only one all-powerful God. But they're comfortable talking about them as different characters. Yeah, this is part of the way that the biblical authors portray the one God's complex identity. They're God's attributes and also distinct from God. Distinct from God and also God. Yes. Once we learn to spot that way of talking about God's identity, you begin to see it all over the scriptures. In fact, you find it in the first sentences of the Bible that mention the Spirit of God. So the opening line of the Bible is pretty familiar. In the beginning, God created. But then keep reading. Who is it that we see within creation hovering over the waters? The Spirit of God. Yeah, so the spirit refers to God's personal presence and energy that we can interact with here within creation. And so the Bible can refer to God's spirit as distinct from God. Distinct from God and also God. It's God's spirit. And while this sounds strange from our point of view, this complexity is what the biblical authors are trying to get us to see. So we've looked at God's attributes and God's spirit. Now let's make our last stop exploring God's complex identity in the Hebrew scriptures with a character called the Son of Man. So in the Bible, there's only one God that people are to worship, which makes this story in the book of Daniel really surprising. Daniel has a dream about a human figure called the Son of Man, which means a member of humanity. And Daniel dreams about this human getting elevated on a cloud up and then higher up. Up into God's space. Yes. And then this human sits at the right hand of God's heavenly throne and all humanity worships this human alongside God. A human where I expect to see God. Yeah. This human is a part of God's identity. This vision is about the climactic hope of the whole biblical story. God and humanity become one so they can rule the world together as one. So the Son of Man is distinct from God and also God. Exactly. So think back over everything we've looked at. In the Hebrew scriptures, God's identity is complex. And so when Jesus' followers encountered God as the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they already had categories for how these could all be the one God of the Bible. Okay, let's talk about that. Okay, so in the New Testament, we're introduced to Jesus of Nazareth. And he's human, but way more. His favorite title to call himself was the Son of Man. The figure in Daniel's vision. And the claim is that he is this complex God become human to unite other humans with God. Okay, so the Gospels portray Jesus as fully human. And also as Yahweh, the God of Israel. Jesus went around saying and doing things that only Yahweh can do, like forgiving people's sins or calming the chaotic waters. So they're saying Jesus is a human distinct from God and also God. Yeah, and that might sound crazy unless you've been reading the Hebrew scriptures, which prepared you for it. And then check this out. Jesus' first followers, the apostles, talked about his identity using the language of God's attributes. They called Jesus the glory of God, or the apostle Paul called Jesus the wisdom of God, or John opens his gospel calling Jesus the word of God through whom the world was created. And then he says, the word was with God and was God. Okay, I get what they're doing and it hurts my brain. Totally. And if you want to spin your brain even more, consider this. 
Jesus, who's portrayed as God become human, would talk to God as a distinct person. And when he did, he called him Father. When Jesus talked about God, he wasn't referring to an abstract force or energy. He was talking about a personal being that you can relate to. There's a lot of personal images of God in the Bible. Ruler, creator, judge. But Jesus consistently referred to God as my father. Jesus experienced God as a source of infinite love. He said, the father has loved me since before the creation of the world. Apparently, Jesus knew the father as an eternally others-centered life-giving being. Right, like in the story about Jesus' baptism, when the father says from heaven, this is my son whom I love. And then keep reading in that story, the person who brings that message of love from the father to the son is the spirit of God. So we've talked about God's spirit. Here within creation, it's through the spirit that we interact with the divine. Yeah, and the same was true for Jesus. Through the spirit, he experienced the father's love, but it didn't stop there. Jesus promised that through him, the Spirit would go out and share the Father's love with all humanity and with all creation. So it can look like these are three distinct gods, but in some way that transcends my view of reality, they're also one. Right. This is what later followers of Jesus called the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the one God of the Bible. I could see how they got there. But this isn't just a philosophy puzzle. To describe God as a triunity is to claim that the universe is held together by an eternal community of love. Which is something that I can't really understand. But the God of the Bible isn't a being that you understand. The point is to know and be known by this God so that we can participate in his love. Wow. I tell you, I've seen that video a thousand times and it almost brings me to tears. I mean, it's just like absolutely incredible. I love it. it it's, you know, it, it kind of makes me realize that this super rational God, he's not irrational just because we can't fully understand him, but he's, he, he can relate to us. So we're rational, he's rational, but he's super rational. I, I, I'm always challenged by the humanistic arrogance that thinks that we can exhaustively define and understand God. I, I really always, I'm always amazed by when somebody gets a little bit of information, whether biblically or experientially, and begins to put it together and tries to explain whether God exists or not, or he's good or not, or whatever it is, that, that, that there's this really presumptuousness of us that we would think that we could fully, exhaustively explain God, and then only after we can do so, then we assent to determine whether or not he has the right to exist and the right to rule or the right to be called God. But we do it all the time. You know, I would look for an analogy. It was, it was, it was this. It was a hydrogen molecule doesn't understand what water is, so it's very much a part of it. Hydrogen is very much a part of what water is. It's It's we would say it's only aware of, and it's not really consciously aware, but we would say that it's relationally aware of an oxygen molecule, okay, or atom. And, and so you, you see that they're in this relationship with each other and they produce this ocean of water. But even in the middle of all that incredible production of this H2O, it is totally unaware of the presence of a fish. It can't explain fish. It doesn't know fish. It doesn't know it's being filtered through the gills of a fish. It doesn't know what's going on. 
it's part of the picture, but it yet it's totally unaware of all that's going on inside of the water. And that's the way it is for us. We experience life as God does. We experience some truth, some love, some compassion, some rationality as God does. But we think that we are the sum definers of what it looks like. And we don't realize that the fish is just moving through all of it. So when we think about God, when I think about what we just learned, it really challenges uh, my concepts of God. And it really moves me in a right direction because I've always had affection for Jesus, as most of you have had affection for Jesus. Who wouldn't have affection for Jesus? Now we put them in different categories, but we have affection for Jesus. But I've always had apprehension with God, and I've definitely had apprehension with this person known as Father. And I think a lot of us have experienced that so much that theologians have tried to uh, remove the fatherhood of God from theology, try to turn him into a, the divine parent, um, or maybe f- feminize him in some way. And, uh, and, but, but we just, it's because we have a problem wrapping our head around this, and maybe it's because of our own personal experiences with the masculine or with fathers or whatever it is. But the audacity of, of us as humans, as the Egyptians would carve out of gold and make these, these little deities, and we would call that idol worship and idol making. We do the same thing when we try to reshape the concept of God in our own images, that we will only take God as much as I can understand God, and a God that I cannot understand, I will totally reject. So I love it, seeing that Jesus is... You know, you wrap Jesus up in all this, it's kind of like, okay, I got to change my concepts here of what I think about God, what I think about the Father. We're not the first persons to have this challenge. It's always happened. At the time the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now the Jews are kind of getting this, probably a little faster than we're getting it. They just don't like it. So they say, it says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them and said, I showed you many good works from the Father. For for which one of them are you stoning me? Kind of snarky, isn't he? I mean, that's kind of a, yeah, but that's cool. I like him kind of like, come on, figure this out, boys. Um, The Jews answered him, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Now Jesus is going to go into it. He's going to use some Hebrew scriptural literature. And he's going to use it, and it's going to go, he's going to use it in a 
a Rubik's Cube kind of way. Um, it's, it's kind of a hard passage to understand. Don't get caught on it. Uh, we can explain it at a later time. But they understand what he's saying. And Jesus said to him, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? Now, so let me just say, nowhere in the scripture does God say that we are gods. Some have misinterpreted that passage. So let's get back to what he's, he's teaching. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe in me. But if I do them... Though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Let me just stop for a second on the last line. Um, they wanted to take a hold of him, but because the way they wanted to take a hold of him, he eluded them. It's really important that when we pursue God, that we pursue God the way that God has presented us to pursue him. Otherwise, he will elude us. They wanted to take a hold of him. They wanted to seize him. But he's like, no, I ain't letting you do that. I am, the father, I am one with the Father. And Jesus said, this is what I'm presenting. If you don't like that, there's nothing else of God to be seized here. There's no other thing to be grabbed a hold of, and I will not let you grab a hold of something. Say, what that tells me is that God will only let himself be known as he wants to be known. We don't get to change it. So there's so much going on in here. There's the Father and the Son are one. The works and the words are one. He said, believe me because my works. If you don't believe me because my works, believe me because my words. If you don't believe the words, believe the works. So we got the Father and the Son are one. We're, we're, we got the, the Son is the word. The Father loves the Son. Um, there's all these corollaries going on. There's kind of like all these equivalences are being put together. It's like uh, the works and the words are the same. The Father and the Son are the same. The Son and the Father. All this is God. So this closes the gap of perception that we have with God. And, and this is where it really helped me personally to understand this concept of God. is because no one thinks of Jesus as being out to hurt them. I don't think anybody here, I won't have you raise your hand, but nobody here thinks, if I told you, do you believe that Jesus Christ, uh, who was born and lived in Nazareth, and do you believe he wants to hurt you? I believe most of you would say, no, Jesus doesn't want to hurt me. I don't think anyone thinks that Jesus wants to send anybody to hell. Anybody here think that Jesus is just a, just wants to, comes to the earth because he just wants to send people to hell? No one thinks Jesus wants to make people sick. Nobody thinks Jesus doesn't care. No one thinks Jesus gives up on anybody. I think we really do believe that. Whether you're a Christian or not, this Jesus of Nazareth guy and the story behind him, what we know about him, nobody thinks that about him. But first of all, let me just say, none of that matters if he's not God. Kind intentions cannot change a flat tire. It doesn't matter if Jesus is all these wonderful things if he ain't got nothing, if he ain't God, if he isn't powerful, if he's not all-powerful, if he's not eternal. 
But also, whatever good I can say about Jesus, and I think we would all say good things about Jesus, I can say about the Father. And I can say about God. No one should think that God is out to hurt them. No one should think that God wants to send people to hell. No one should think that God wants to make people sick. No one should think that God doesn't care. And no one thinks God, no one should think that God gives up on us. If Jesus is God, then how we think about God, how we think about Father changes. And, and that, was, that was hard for me to buy into because I had loving Jesus, angry God syndrome, okay? I probably got it from my father, you know, early on. He changed it later on, but I always got to give him credit for, for redemption. And, and, but um, I always had this idea that, that God wanted to kill me and Jesus wanted to save me, and that Jesus was up there kind of like, oh, come on, Dad. You know, I know he's stupid, but, you know, he'll be so cool in heaven. You know, you'll like him, you know. Uh, it, but it's like, no, that's not it at all. There is no differentiation between them. There is nothing incongruent between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is, and I hate to use technical words, but I got to use them in, in your smart crowd. So, there is perfect equivalency between the heart of the Father and the words and the works of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. They're perfectly equivalent. There is no variation or shadow or shifting in what the Heavenly Father is, what the Spirit is, what the Son is, what God is, and what, they are, what he they are about. There's a word in science that I, I like, and I wanted to finally use it in a sermon, so I'm going to use it. Um, but it works perfectly here. It's the word attenuation. Attenuation is a word that refers to the diminishing of amplitude or quality in mostly a radio signal or in a waveform. You know, it's, it's, it's when you turn the knob on your AM or your... Uh, you're a CD, uh, whatever they are now. What are we doing? We're past MP3 players. What, what are we doing? We stream it. That's right, we stream. When you turn it up, whenever you turn that up and down, you are, you are inducing attenuation into it. You are diminishing the signal. Or when it breaks up and it's... You know, you hear that noise in it. That is a diminishing of the quality of the sound or the signal that's, that's going on. Here is an abstract image representing the activity of a mind. This actually is a, an image of an, uh, the mind activity of an artificial mind. Um, but let's just throw the word artificial out. But this is actually kind of a waveform representation of the activity of, of a mind. So let me, but let me read this scripture first. The scripture says that Jesus is one with the Father. It says it in a very technical way. It's going to have something to do with this. Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the power of his word. It's talking about Jesus. But, it's, but the scripture is saying it is the exact representation of the glory of God in all things. Okay, so, so I'm going to overlay this 
image with another image, okay? And we're going to toggle back and forth because I want you to see the differences that are happening here. In this little illustration here, I've taken the exact same image and I've laid it over, but I attenuated it just a little bit, just shifted it a little bit to the right. What happens when it, it gets fuzzy, doesn't it? It gets blurry, okay? Then what I, I did was take these two images and tried to lay them over each other and ended up with this. Okay, so that's it. That's not exactly perfect. I bet you if we zoomed in a gazillion times that my mouse could not calibrate for the exact overlay of this thing. My point is this. The scriptures are telling us that the mind of Christ, the mind of the Father, are exact overlays and there is no attenuation at all. There's no blurriness. See, the Jews were having a problem with the blurriness. Wait a minute, wait, so you're saying you're Yahweh? You're, you're saying you're God? You're saying you could forgive sins? And they were having a hard time overlaying the minds. And, and what we're being told from Scripture, that there is nothing in the mind of the Father that is not exactly represented in perfect equivalence without any attenuation in the mind of Jesus. So Jesus says, when you've seen me, you have seen the Father. There's no shift. I'm telling you, I said no shift, okay? I, I just realized, I, just, <laughs> I dropped off the last little bit real fast, and so I was like, whoa. <laughs> there, there is no attenuation at all with them. I tell you what, that changes everything for me. That means when I'm going on a walk and I'm talking to God the Father, when I'm talking to God, and sometimes we don't know, do I pray to God? Do I pray to God the Father? Do I pray to Jesus? Do I pray to the Holy Spirit? So I, you know, folks, perfect attenuation, I mean, no attenuation, perfect overlay, just go ahead and pray, okay? You know, and, and, and so that means when I'm talking to God, it's like, so you're, you're, you don't want to kill me, you, you want to save me, you would die for me, you did die for me, you give me a hope in the future, um, you don't want to harm me, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, I perfectly. Just like you saw in Jesus, it is with the Father. See, what scripture is telling us is that what the Father is and wants done and spoke is, is equally Jesus, it is equally God. The Father's truth is God's truth. The Son's truth is God's truth. The Spirit's truth is God's truth. The reason why I think people are, are kind of like leaving churches is because we are called, Jesus says later on, I pray that you may be one as me and my Father are one. That we would lose our attenuation. See, because whenever we get Jesus wrong, whenever we get God wrong, whenever we get other people wrong, what happens to the picture? It gets blurry. It's a little bit of shift. They're talking about Jesus, but it's just not, it's just not right. But we are called to have the mind of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit so that that attenuation would disappear. So this changes our perspective of God a couple of ways. How we think about Jesus, it's like, oh, oh. Remember, you've probably heard some pastors will say, you don't need the Old Testament. That's, that's God in the Old Testament, then Jesus in the New Testament, and then the Holy Spirit thereafter. That is totally bogus. 
I'm going to say something to you that will rock some of you if you're into theology. Uh, there's one kind of like weird story that H2O um, molecules don't understand about the fish because they don't even know the fish is there. But there's one story where God tells Jer Joshua to go into Jericho and to wipe out Jericho. Everybody, everything, everybody, everything. And it's like, dang, God in the Old Testament is like really hardcore. I don't want that one. I want the Jesus one. God tells Joshua to go do it. Jesus is the word of God. Through the word of God, the earth and the universe was created. Through the word of God in Colossians, it is sustained. When justice is brought into the world and a human is told to go wipe out Jericho, it was Jesus who said it. I will take a step further. If Joshua wasn't there, but the second person of the Trinity was incarnate in Jesus, he would have wiped out Jericho. And you're like, not my Jesus. Oh, absolutely. Read the book of Revelations about your Jesus. Okay? Um, scripture says that God is not mocked. What a man sows, he's going to reap it. So this kind of like just in my brain just sobered me up about Jesus a little bit. He's not just my drinking buddy. And it kind of infatuated me to the Father. So much so in my Bible, I, when I, whenever the Father would pop up, I'd take green marker and highlight it in green because green kind of, we speak peace in that. And it made me realize, wow, the Bible's far more green than we realize. Everybody's like, I want the letters in red. I like the ones in, I like the ones in green. That's my heavenly father talking to me. God, our heavenly father, loves you no less than Jesus. And Jesus, our redeemer, loves you no more than the father. God, in all of his overlays, is love. He is not a divided house. Jesus is not just a good guy. Jesus is not the nicer third of God. Jesus is not a victim. Jesus has the power to keep all of his promises. Jesus is unstoppable, and the gates of hell will not prevail against him. Okay? Why? Because he's God, not a good guy. Other way, he would have gone the way of Gandhi and somebody else, though you really don't want to know the story of Gandhi. Likewise, God is not a tyrant. God is not judgmental. God is not forgetful. God is all loving. God is unstoppable. God is relentlessly in love with you. But I have to say this, God is not to be messed with. And you don't get to reshape him. If he wants to be called father, you just say, yes, sir. Because that father was in Christ, dying on the cross, reconciling the world to himself. Because he loves you so, so much. I tell you what, this, this made me fall in love with God so much. So when I think my pain is too much, I got God. So when I feel unlovable, I got God. When I look at the world and see how depressing it is and a little fearful about it, I got God. 
when I look at my kids and my grandkids and wonder what's going on in their lives, I got God. When I'm confused, God. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably offend you in saying this, but we need to be very clear about who is God, what is God, and what is not. It is not God and my truth. There is only one God. There was nothing in there where you saw my personal truth inserted into the, the dimensional formation of God. It's not God and astrology. There was no place in there where the mention of the moon, movement of gravitational movement of burning objects moving around the galaxy affects the outcome of human beings' life. There's only one God. It's not God in my whiteness. It's not God in my blackness. It's not God in my political party. It's not God in my wealth. It's not even God in my country. God bless it if he chooses to. It's God. I love what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2. He says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself you know, we have a habit as Catholics, and I said, like, woo, we're all of a sudden Catholic. Um, <laughs> if you were raised Catholic, once a Catholic, always a Catholic. Have you heard that before? Yeah, you're kind of like in there forever. And I didn't reject everything about being Catholic, and there's a lot of good stuff. And, and they kept Christianity alive for a long time while the rest of us Protestant folks weren't even born yet. So I, 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 every time I read it, and I think of my mother, it says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ... We were taught that every time you said the word Jesus, you did this with your head. Any other Catholics out there remember that? Yeah. You know why? Because it was acknowledging Jesus as deity, bowing before Jesus. Imagine if we took that habit back up again. That's why I'm offended when Jesus' name gets cursed in a movie. Because they'll say, gee, you know, or whatever, used to, I'm over here, general flicked in my head, it's like, wait a minute, you know, I thought this was a call to worship. Oh, you're blaspheming his name. But I love the way Paul's going to, he's going to put this together. And the reason why he puts it together is because you and I tend to separate the Father and the Son. God, uh, Jesus, yeah. So he says this, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. He's like, don't you, this equivalency is never to be forgotten. Don't you think Jesus is greater than the Father, nicer than the Father? Don't you think that the Father is judgmental and patriarchal and, 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 and you know, euthanizing and all this other stuff? He's like, no, no, no. He says, let's put this together and let's never forget it, that may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us, I love it, the singular of the plural, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word because they are supposed to be equivalent. He's like, don't, don't forget who gave you all this. Jesus, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus. God, yeah, yeah. The Father, yeah, the Holy Spirit, all of them. Yeah, he said, don't forget. The being known as God that we call Father, that we see historically as Jesus, that we experience through the Holy Spirit in our souls because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. All of it 
doesn't want to hurt us. Doesn't want to send us to hell. Will never leave us nor forsake us. Laid down its mortal expression of life for us. So I want to, as we... Earlier I talked about the flag about America, about independence, and I presented the idea of independence to restore it back up because we had dropped the idea. I want to pray this prayer together, and I want you to pray it out loud with me to restore and to declare to your soul and those around you this truth that raises all of us up and glorifies God. So please join me. And Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgotten, forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's God. And we are offered Him. Today, we'll be taking bread and the cup together and representing that God moment of Jesus dying on the cross, giving his life for us. God will not allow himself to be seized or grasped in any other word, way other than by his word and his works in Jesus Christ. If the Father is as good and kind as Jesus in every way, why would you not want Him? Why would you not want a Father? Why would you lean on another religion or a mysticism or planets for your definition? Why would you think as an H2O molecule that your truth defines God? Why would we think that if God is good, he would have to be white or black, male or female or trans or whatever we are striving to try to get God to be? Jesus called him Father, and I will too. And you are invited through Jesus to reconnect with the origin of your life, your Heavenly Father.